Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast. Bite-sized, regular chats for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando for more clinical tips relevant to all those working in primary care. And also please visit www.gpnotebookpodcast.com for comprehensive show notes featuring key references, resources and take-home points for each episode. In this episode, I'd like to introduce a new member of the GP Notebook team, Dr. Kate Chesterman. Kate is a GP in Wyndham Medical Practice near Norwich, and in this episode, she discusses new evidence on the management of children with non-blanching rashes with Dr. Edward Snelson. Dr. Snelson is a consultant emergency paediatrician at Sheffield Children's Hospital and is the author of the blog GP Peds Tips. Together, they discuss key questions such as, should we be treating every non-blanching rash as meningococcal disease? And if not, why not? Secondly, what important differentials should we consider in children with a fever and a non-blanching rash? And finally, can GPs safely decide which children require emergency treatment? So a warm welcome to Kate. And a reminder to check out the show notes for this episode, which include a flowchart on the pragmatic approach to the child with non-blanching rash. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. I'm Kate Chesterman, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Edward Snelson, who is a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at Sheffield Children's Hospital. Before retraining as a paediatrician, Edward was a GP for over five years, and he re he's retained a strong interest in creating links with general practice and his colleagues in the community. He's the author of the blog GP Peds Tips, and it was a recent post on here about non-blanching rashes in children that caught my attention, and this is going to form the basis of our discussion today. So Edward, welcome, and thank you very much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me along. So I was really interested by your article, as I think certainly historically this wasn't a topic that warranted a huge amount of discussion. If you had a child with a fever and a non-blanching rash in the community, then you, you treated them as meningococcal disease, gave them IM antibiotics, you blue-lighted them to hospital. But it seems that the evidence is changing and that maybe our approach to the management of these children should also be changing. Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, the, uh, the reality is that, of course, uh, things do change in clinical practice and it takes a while for evidence to come out about that and even longer often for guidelines to change. Um, but what's happened both, I think, in primary and secondary care is that there has been a recognition that the old adage of fever plus non-blanching rash is sepsis still proven otherwise stopped being true a long time ago. Okay. Um, and uh, we've been trying to work out uh, exactly what to do with that realisation. Okay. And is that because the, the prevalence of meningococcal disease has gone down in the community? It is, absolutely. Uh, the, the old days of a fever with a non-blanching rash uh, having a high pretest probability for sepsis um, has long gone. I remember the uh, practice in the in the 90s where it was 
probably the safe and sensible thing to do to treat presumptively. Uh, but the introduction of a, an effective meningococcal vaccination program um, has reduced the uh, incidence of meningococcal disease in the population. But of course, what it didn't reduce is the other children who are getting a non-blanching rash as part of an uncomplicated uh, illness, an upper respiratory tract or other infection uh, that was not septic or meningitic. Uh, and those have always been there, but in the past we treated them until we were sure it wasn't, and now we are uh, realising that they are the vast majority of children presenting with fever and non-blanching rash. Okay, so if we stuck with that guidance that we have had in the past, we would therefore be over-treating and over-investigating quite a large proportion of children? Yes. Okay. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, the numbers are... Uh, are interesting, but of course, the, uh, the e even asking the question, what's the prevalence amongst children with fever and non-blanching rash isn't the whole question, is it? Uh, mm -hmm. We see children um, with fever and non-blanching rash and say, well, what is the probability that that child has invasive uh, bacterial infection, meningococcal disease or whatever? And the answer is somewhere about one in 500 now. Okay. Um, which is relatively low. Now, some people might say, well, that's enough um, to still warrant, because of the seriousness of the outcome, to still warrant presumptive treatment. And everybody's, uh, everybody's idea of what is safe uh, is, is going to be different. But I think that the interesting question that we haven't had an answer to for a long time is for those ones who do have meningococcal sepsis, how likely is it that the only presenting features will be fever and a non-blanching rash? So when you're faced with a child in primary care for whom the only concern was fever and a non-blanching rash, um, how likely is it that they won't have another feature that is a red flag that says to you, this is the child I should worry about? Um, uh, and how safe is it, therefore, to, uh, to discharge that patient without like you say, stabbing them in the leg with IM Ben Pen, sending them to hospital, um, in fact, just giving them exactly the same kind of symptomatic treatment advice and safety netting that you would do to a child without the particular rash. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I think with any new guidance that comes out, when meningococcal disease is being thought of as, as a differential we, we're going to want to be absolutely sure aren't we that we're not going to be missing any children with meningococcal disease and I think it's going to be a, a real concern among you know, general practice and presumably with your colleagues in emergency departments as well that that any new guideline still has to retain the the hundred percent sensitivity that we would get from the current guidelines of treat everybody. Well, yes and no. Um, I, I agree that you, what we want is 100% certainty, but we can never have that in reality, can we? Uh, there is no, no it's an idea, thing. isn't it? But it's... Yeah, um, but nobody works in a risk-free environment. And I think that primary care, from my experience, is one of the uh, specialist environments which manages uncertainty better than uh, lots of other specialties. Uh, so it's it's about setting a threshold where you think that because you talked about over treatment, there's also uh, over referral. Um, all of these things carry risks of their own, don't they? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so if we say, well, 
we have to uh, we have to treat five hundred uh, in order to uh, in order to benefit one. The question is, what is the risk to those five hundred who have uncomplicated infections that we're going to self-resolve? Uh, what's the risk of being in hospital? What's the hosp- What's the risk of invasive procedures uh, and all the rest of it? And the answer is, nobody really knows exactly, but, but it is going to be a number, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And you talked in your blog about some new evidence that's come out, and particularly about the PIC study. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that and what that's that's been aiming at and what, what it's showing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's exciting new evidence. The PIC study, which was published at the end of last year in The Lancet, uh, is a, a, a very cleverly designed study because what it did was it took a very large uh, cohort of children with fever and non-blanching rash, and then it applied it to various guidelines, six, I believe, um, which had been introduced locally around the country by secondary care to address the issue that they recognized that it was possible to discern rather than to treat presumptively. Okay. Now, those six studies were all secondary care-based and all had a uh, an algorithm or a guideline which was really best suited to secondary care because it involved, in every case, the uh, the, the use of blood tests and period of observation in order to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on which guideline they put through the patient cohort, they came up with a, 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 a an indicator of how good it was at recognising children who didn't need treatment. Okay. So they all retained good sensitivity, but their specificity inevitably was better than the NICE guidelines, which essentially would treat everybody in every case. Okay. Now that, like I say, was very exciting. It was definitely a step forward and validated an approach which involved decision-making. But the guideline that hadn't been included in that study was the one that we have at the Sheffield Children's Emergency Department, um, which I'm uh, I'm pleased to say doesn't emphasise the use of blood tests and doesn't mandate a period of observation. It is very much designed around senior decision-making, experienced decision-making, um, and recognition of the seriously unwell child. And so to, uh, to summarise, I guess, if you like, if I see a child who say, let's say a three-year-old who has had a fever and has a scattered petechial rash, um, I will assess them for signs of sepsis, meningitis. I will consider other diagnoses. And if none of those other serious diagnoses, and we can talk about those later, um, if I consider none of them credible or likely, and I don't think the child has signs of sepsis or meningitis, I can discharge them from the emergency department Uh, without blood tests, without a period of observation. Um, And even if, this is is exciting stuff as well, even if they've had pre-hospital IM penicillin. Okay. Yeah. That is a big change, isn't it? So the reason why I think that 
that guideline is particularly useful is that when you look at it, there's very much nothing about it that can't be done in primary care. Okay. Now, that was retrospectively uh, applied to the same cohort by the same uh, the study author of the PIC study using the same uh, methodology and was shown not just to be as good uh, at recognizing those who are needing treatment and those who can be safely discharged, it was better. Okay, so despite the fact that you're not using periods of monitoring, despite the fact you're not using blood tests um, as a marker of, of how unwell somebody is, with that experienced clinical decision-making, you're finding that you're retaining sensitivity, but you're reducing, even beyond those other guidelines, the number of children that are having unnecessary investigations. In all treatment, indeed. Or treatment, absolutely. And I guess the question then is, is what is a... a an experienced decision maker and are we in general practice experienced decision makers compared to someone like yourself who's a you know a pediatric emergency care doctor yeah i mean that's that, that's a good question um do you uh do you know what a seriously unwell child looks like um uh, yeah I, I guess i've seen seriously unwell children in my clinical practice yes yeah and you've seen presumably an awful lot of children with uncomplicated infections that you feel are uh are, are safe to be treated symptomatically absolutely yes and if you are comfortable with making that decision the evidence from the PIC study um to uh to quote the author um, uh, and I haven't got the wording in front of me, but uh, I'll paraphrase rather than quote perhaps, uh, is to say that in the with the prevalence that we have of meningococcal disease in the UK, the presence of petechiae, and that is important to distinguish from purpura, the presence of petechiae in a febrile child should no longer be used as a, uh, a decision-making element uh, for that uh, for that clinical assessment because it is no longer suggestive of uh, serious infection. So when you put it like that, I guess if you want to look at it simply, an experienced or senior decision maker in primary care is somebody who is already making that decision for the child without a petechial rash. Yes. And as you say, that's something that we do regularly in our clinical practice. Indeed. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, you you um, touched upon the idea of other diagnoses and things that that could cause these presentations in children. I wondered if you'd mind discussing or telling us a little bit more about about what else might present in this way. Yeah. So the likely uh, other rare possibilities, um, probably the most common one uh, for causing petechial rash in children uh, is the uh, the immune thrombocytopenia purpura or ITP. Mm -hmm. um, now that tends to be a post-infective phenomenon. So the very fact that the child is febrile and has the petechiae makes that extremely unlikely. Um, uh, and uh, as I say, in primary care, you're very good at uh, risk management and uh, and managing uncertainty. So let's multiply the the improbabilities of ITP with this child. Um, it is improbable that they will get the particular rash during the febrile illness. 
Okay. Um, then if you multiply that improbability by the fact that it will almost certainly be a sparse petechial rash that you're happy to discharge, and the ITP tends to cause a very diffuse and pronounced uh, petechial rash that would probably make people look at it and think, oh, this is not uh, within two standard deviations of what I've seen before. This is a lot and it's all over. Um, so you're not going to be just ignoring that. So that's another improbability. And then multiply that by the improbability that if you miss one, the child will come to harm. And that in itself is very unlikely because most ITP is self-resolving and does not get treated. Um, it goes through a process that is a very common one in secondary care where it is observed until it resolves, but without intervention. <laughs> so ITP, I think, uh, is likely to be recognizable by pattern of illness and rash and that the small probability that it is there but unrecognized um, is is such that we can not worry about that if it presents with a sparse rash in an acute febrile child. Um, the next one that people will probably worry about the most is hematological malignancy. Yes. Um, if you uh, if you asked all of your listeners to this um, whether they've ever seen a child uh, present with symptoms of being unwell and a non-blanching rash um, and that turned out to be leukemia, they will probably be able to find a, a few amongst them for whom that is a story. Mm -hmm. It is unlikely that that child will present with a fever, but not impossible because malignancy can cause pyrexia. But the pattern again will probably be unusual uh, in that it won't present like an acute uh, infectious presentation. In other words, they've got all their viral symptoms uh, and the rash coincided with that. If they are unwell, it's usually in a different way. Lethargic, um, it's a little bit more chronic. It's happened over many days rather than the typical pattern of an illness, uh, that uh, the viral illness that causes petechiae. They're probably going to be pale and just look unwell. So I think that the hematological malignancy is a possibility, but again, most likely recognizable. Okay. And as you say, they're probably the two most severe, serious diagnoses that we, we may want to also be concerned about in children presenting in this way. Yes. And then I've get, I guess you've got the more, the more common presentations, as you said, the, the kind of otherwise well child with a, a viral illness, the mechanical causes from coughing or vomiting can also present in a similar similar pattern. Yeah, so I think we've been uh, we, we've been fairly philosophical about the uh, the petechial rash that appears above the uh, from the top of the chest upwards for a long time, haven't we? Yes. Uh, we accept that if that is the pattern, that is strongly indicative of a mechanical cause, as you say. You know, the child coughs or vomits or indeed has a massive tantrum um, yes. and then uh, presents. It's often mostly around the face and the neck, isn't it, that they get those Absolutely. Uh, those spots. Um, and that is in itself uh, a really reassuring. And I think most clinicians uh, across the board have for a long time been saying, 
that is uh, that is the explanation, and we don't need to overthink that. And as you said, these are these are the children that are otherwise well, aren't they? These are the ones that are running around your consulting room or your emergency department, destroying the place. And um, yes, and it comes back to what you say that it's very rare that a child with meningococcal disease will only present with a, a high temperature and a rash. They are going to be unwell in other ways as well. Yes. Now you mentioned the rash, and I would want to emphasise to the listeners how important it is to distinguish between petechiae and purpura. Because one of the things that the PIC study showed was that purpura, in other words, large non-blanching spots, um, rather than the pinprick, pinprick petechiae, um, they should still be taken very seriously. Okay. Um, that they are strongly indicative. Um, and of course, we have uh, a, a risk with, a, uh, with, with any presentation that we want it to be the uncomplicated infection. We don't want it to be the serious one. So we do need to look and say, do you know what? Those, those spots are, are bigger um, and that, that does need to be taken seriously. Okay, that's a really good distinction to make. So thank you for making that point. And you've um, you've reproduced the the Sheffield guidance on your on your blog post, and and I've had a look at it, and it is very clear. Um, and I think it it goes back to what we've been saying about that initial assessment of is this a well child or is it an unwell child, and then looking for that pattern recognition, looking for those other things that that could be causing it. And so the combination of a, a clinical assessment, pattern recognition, can then help you make that decision about whether this is a child that you need to be treating for meningococcal disease or, or whether this one can be managed in a different way, either with reassurance or with less emergency treatment. Yes, absolutely. And that um, that assessment of whether you think it is a serious uh, infection uh, rather than an uncomplicated one is one that takes a lot of, it's a skill that takes a lot of developing. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex process. It's not a formula. Uh, the sometimes guidelines give the impression that there is a uh, an algorithm for recognizing sepsis in children, and that's just not the case. Um, the difficulty is that they uh, respond so uh, strongly in a physiological sense to even the most simple infections uh, that they can have uh, fast heart rates, they can have high temperatures, um, you know, and they can still have a straightforward infection that's going to self-resolve and cause no harm. And so experienced clinicians seeing children start to recognize those uh, those elements that they think uh, are reassuring, as well as the things uh, that might cause your uh, primary care software to say, think sepsis. Yes. And you look at the child and you think, <laughs> I'm thinking it's really not. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes the, it is that gut reaction that somebody's ill, isn't it? And sometimes, yes, absolutely. Um, and the the global assessment that uh, that gestalt uh, impression that the clinician gets is at least as valid as the uh, as the sort of the more uh, guideline based approach, which is far more based on binary elements, which are problematic at best. Yes. But I think the interesting thing, certainly for us, and that, that's come out of this study and, and from what you're talking about, is that this is the same assessment that we're making with children every day. And the presence of a non-blanching rash shouldn't necessarily change that decision making. 
we're still doing the same assessment of whether this is an unwell septic child, whether they've got a rash or not. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. My experience uh, from uh, delivering education is that a lot of people in primary care had uh, realised this a long time ago, have been doing this in practice. Um, the reason why I think it's exciting news is that it validates that practice and hopefully um, allows uh, a little bit of a revolution towards reduction of overtreatment and uh, and overdiagnosis. Brilliant. So, so in conclusion, as, as you alluded to already, Tom Waterfield, who was the lead author of the PIC study, said that in vaccinated populations where the pre prevalence of invasive meningococcal disease is low, the presence of petechiae alone should no longer be viewed as a red flag and should, be not, should not be used to justify immediate treatment with broad spectrum antibiotics. And you've gone on to explain how with, with careful clinical assessment for other signs of sepsis or, or invasive bacterial infection, a proportion of children can avoid unnecessary admission and investigations. Absolutely. That is the, that is the take home message. Uh, it's important that people don't just listen to this. They probably ought to read the original paper and, uh, uh, and see the, the evidence for themselves. Um, but yes, I, I would strongly encourage people to start thinking in terms of using that approach um, because we, we want to act in the best interest of the child and over-caution um, carries a risk of harm. Absolutely. Well, that's been fascinating. So thank you very much again, Edward, for, for talking to us today and, and for explaining this, this new evidence and um, your thoughts behind it so clearly. And we really appreciate that. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.